All right, all right. What's up, everybody? How's it going? Steven Ignoramus here. Welcome to Call Me Ignorant. It is 7.04 p.m., May the 5th, 2019. So pleased you could be with us. Call Me Ignorant is a live conversation show where guests and I will get to talk and also let the internet do some of the talking, whether with an interesting content creator, an expert in a field, or a chance for, for fans to call in. Call Me Ignorant will try to solve the problems of the world, conversationally speaking. We are streaming live on YouTube, Twitch, Periscope, Mixer, DLive, and Picarto right now by looking for Steven Ignoramus. If you can't catch the show live, you can find it after the fact on the above-mentioned platforms, also on BitChute. You can find me on Twitter at IgnoramusSteve or send me an email at StevenIgnoramus at gmail.com. Topic ideas, possible guests for the show, and things that I can look up are much appreciated. My guest tonight is Michael Autry. He is an active-duty United States Naval officer and the creator of the Unalienable podcast, where he explores modern political issues through the, through the lens of the United States Constitution. I've been a fan of his podcast for about a year now, and it's a wonderful source of information about American history and civics. How's it going tonight, Michael? Doing great, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. Doing good here, too. So I think before we get started, there's uh, something that you had to read or say. Right. So just to cover my own ass, I got to always give this disclaimer that the views I express are mine alone and don't necessarily represent the official policy or position of the Department of Defense, Department of the Navy or the U.S. government. All right, cool. So now that is out of the way. Um, like I said earlier, I'm a really big fan of your podcast. And, uh, um, you know, I, I think it's really, really balanced and a really fair take. You do a good job of, uh, I don't know, presenting both sides and also just uh presenting what the text says and stuff like that. But, but before we get into your show, um, I just wanted to know um, when it was in your life that you decided to join the Navy? Like, what was that whole process of deciding to do that? And, you know, some people were eight years old. Some people were 15 when they decided to. What, what's your story like? Yeah, my uh, my story is not as not as cool as all that. I uh, <clears throat> I actually grew up with very little military influence in my life. Uh, I have I had like uncles that were in the military, but I didn't know them. It was like they lived somewhere else. I literally never met them. Like I knew they existed. I knew like I had a couple of grandparents like my two both grandpas were, you know, in the military, but one of them died when I was really young. So growing up, the only real influence I had is my brother joined the army and he's two years older than me. He, he joined the army when he was 17. And, uh, you know, he and I weren't weren't living in the same part of the country at that point. But, you know, even at that point, I, I always kind of, I think I drank the Kool-Aid that that's kind of being pushed. You, you see this now, especially a lot of people, a lot of conservatives are now coming out and talking about how we've been sold this idea that college is the answer and that everyone should go to college. And, and it's going to, all you got to do is go to college, major in whatever you want to, and everyone's going to be rich. And, you know, I kind of bought that a bit. I just, I knew I was going to college. And to me, the idea of joining the military when I was in high school, when I was young, that was something that losers did. People that couldn't get into college, people that couldn't succeed. Um, it's literally how I thought about it. No, I mean, I didn't go around spouting that, but you know, that was my own thought. Like my brother to me, you know, he had, he had dropped out of high school. He was dyslexic and it was un undiagnosed and he kind of, you know, he eventually dropped out. He got his GED eventually and joined the army and, and made a much better life for himself. But the point is like, that was all I knew was, okay, high school dropouts, go join the army, you know? Um, so for me, it was a decision that kind of, uh, 
it was life did kind of fall apart a bit. You know, when I was about 20, 21, I had a, I actually went and failed out of college, uh, not because I was stupid, just because I was doing stupid stuff, you know, and like very common college kid story. Just yeah. I had an awesome first year. Like I got I, I finished freshman year, like a three point seven GPA or something like that. And then by the end of sophomore year, I was down to like a two point five overall, like it dropped that much. Um, I passed I got like one A in in a class and that was intro to social dance. <laughs> ballroom dancing nice uh, everyone gets an a it's not that i'm good at dancing but <laughs> anyway um point is i totally just you know this this long time girlfriend i had dumped me and then i lost my job and then i like tore my acl and it just spiraled and i just sucked at life and and i let it get the best of me and i failed out of college and that's when i started thinking about the navy wow uh what literally did it was i was watching tears of the sun with my best friend the navy seal movie with uh, Bruce Willis where he's, wow. and uh, we were just sitting there and I was just at his house and we were, I was just, we were just talking about how screwed I was, but we like, yeah, hey, let's watch a movie. And then it was like, dude, let's do that. <laughs> and so we went to the recruiting office together, wanted to be Navy SEALs. And uh, so it wasn't just that I was screwed. I also wanted to be a badass and that's mm -hmm. kind of what made me want to do it. Um, I happened to be screwed. And that's why, even though I didn't get the badass route, I still went Navy. And um, so yeah, I was about, I was 21 when I enlisted in the Navy. Uh, and really it was because I was pretty much out of options. And that's a very common story. And it's why I am so quick to advocate for the military, for people whose lives are kind of going south and going mm -hmm. south. It's a really, it doesn't happen for everybody, but it is a really good way to turn your life around. If you play your cards right, if you keep your, if you keep your nose clean and you do the right things and you work hard, you can really turn your life around. So uh, a few years later, I got selected for the Naval Academy. Um, so I graduated with a bachelor's in electrical engineering in 2015 from the U.S. Naval Academy, got, got commissioned as an officer in the U.S. Navy. And, uh, you know, now I'm just going around the world and having a good time trying to make the most of it. Wow. Well, uh, so I didn't know that you had your degree in electrical engineering. Do you do you use that in your work at all? Or do, is that just what you chose? And yeah, it doesn't come up. It doesn't um, come up. OK, gotcha. I, I am cool. uh, an engineer. So in the Navy, we have a bunch of different uh, staff corps. There's like medical corps, the chaplain corps, the dental corps. There's uh supply core and mine is the civil engineer core so i'm not a civil engineer i studied electrical engineering but it's one community within the navy that has you're required to have an engineering degree mm. it doesn't matter what kind so the rest of the navy you know whatever officer you want you'd be a pilot submariner uh surface warfare any of those things you can have any degree at all you could literally you could, not at the naval academy but if you went to another school and got a degree you could literally uh get a degree in underwater basket weaving and still be a naval officer. It's just, you have to go to officer commissioning school if you got your degree somewhere else or, or, if, or uh, ROTC. So the Naval Academy, obviously uh, you can't do underwater, ba underwater basket weaving, but uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of, a lot of Naval Academy graduates are STEM. Uh, we have humanities majors there, Okay, but uh, even, even if you, even if you graduate with a humanities major. So if you say you're an English major from the Naval Academy, it's an English, you have a bachelor's of science in English. 
because all your because there's so many more prerequisites that are science based and STEM. That, for example, even if you're studying English at the Naval Academy, you have to take Calc one, Calc two, okay. Calc three, uh, physics, chemistry. Like you have to take all that stuff, anyways. So they basically everyone gets a bachelor's of science from the Naval Academy, um, even if they're English majors and stuff. But uh, yeah, so I, I don't use my engineering degree in my job, but I have. I'm in a community that requires you to be an engineer, mm. and it's because we do at least. Uh, in our deployable units, the CBs is what it's called. Uh, they are an engineering unit, like a military engineering unit. They build stuff, you know, we build, we fight. And so the officers have to be engineers and uh, it's the only community in the Navy that requires that. Wow. So I was going to, I was going to ask this later, but since you're talking about kind of the the work or whatever that you do now. So I, I heard in a podcast maybe three or four months ago, maybe just two months ago that you went to Antarctica. I did. Yeah. I did. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So, uh, I'm, uh, I was part of a unit that, uh, that goes down to Antarctica. It's, it's actually a joint, uh, it's a joint mission that happens every year and it is, it's run by the air force, but it's joint as in it's multiple services, uh, the Coast Guard is involved, the, the Navy, the Air Force. Um, as far as I could tell, there was no Army or Marine Corps playing. But um, so in the middle of summer for them, which is the middle of winter for us because it's Southern Hemisphere. So it's like the warmest time of year when the ice is the thinnest. Uh, there's a, there's uh, every U.S. base down there, and there's a bunch of them, is uh, under the auspices of the U.S. Antarctica program, which is which is part of the National Science Foundation. So that the big logistics hub for them is uh, McMurdo Station. And that's been there, like literally there's like a hut that's been there for like a hundred years um, from the original like Antarctic or South Pole explorations and stuff. And no have, way, wow. Yeah, so there's a, it's really neat and um, so, but this, this logistics hub is where they get all their stuff for the whole year, because when the winter comes, you can't break through the ice to get to this. It's McMurdo station is on an Island, but the Island is surrounded by sea ice. So you can walk off the Island, you know, like it's right in that, in the, there's the part of Antarctica that ends up, it's like a Gulf. You know, if you look at it, it's like the only part like that. Um, it's yeah, directly yeah. South of yeah. New Zealand, um, like straight South straight shot. And, uh, so that spot is where we, we bring in a ship comes in. It's not our ship. It's a civilian ship. So my unit, we don't, we're not ship drivers. We're not blue Navy We're we go and operate the cranes on the ships and offload cargo. So we're, we're, uh, we're cargo handlers. Uh, that's where that's, that's the unit I'm, I, I was attached to for that mission. Wow. Um, so, uh, that's not a CB thing. That's just a sweet gig that I picked up, uh, <laughs> That's a once in, once in a career type of job that I got hmm. uh, for a couple of years, but uh, but yeah, they it's all their stuff their 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 entire year supply of food, uh, hmm. booze actually yeah <laughs> uh, there so it's a science it's all science is the mission down there so we're basically contributing to the, the logistical piece of the National Science Foundation's mission to explore Antarctica hmm. and, uh, you know, and do scientific research down there. So when, you know, we bring vehicles down there, we bring 
whatever equipment they need, like, and, and then construction material because they're building more stuff down there. They're building, they're re renovating the camp. They're building new camps or, you know, you know, renovating a bunch of new camps. So, so from there, they'll, they'll fly it out to all the different camps, you know, but mm. there's one, once a year, a big old ship comes in with thousands of, of, of containers of cargo. Um, and we, we drop off all their stuff. So we're just, we're really glory in this mission. We are glorified UPS men and, and garbage men because they don't leave anything behind. So literally there are big 40 foot containers full of human waste that we <laughs> load back onto the ship. They take it back to America and do what Damn. God knows what with it. But it's not, it's, yeah, all their rubbish, all their garbage, everything. They don't leave anything in Antarctica. It's pristine. So there's no landfills. There's no, you know, none of that. Yeah. So we take, so we take everything back and then, and then we head out of there. Another neat thing is on the way down and the way back, we stop in New Zealand and spend, uh, you know, about a week on each end in New Zealand. So that's, that's pretty awesome. Wow. So, so I got to go to New Zealand and I got to go to Antarctica for one mission. It was awesome. Cool. And that was, that was just this past in the past three or four months, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So yeah. what, what was the, what's the process of actually joining the Navy? Like, like you said that you watched that movie with your friend, you went to the recruit recruiting office, but what are the months after that? You know, um, do you do, uh, like, is it called buds? Oh, uh, I didn't do buds. Didn't do buds. I didn't, okay, that's I didn't become a Navy SEAL. That's for that's being a SEAL. Seal. Gotcha. Okay. My buddy, so my, my best friend and I joined together and we both wanted to be SEALs. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you a little, a little about that buds thing. I, mean, I won't go into it, but uh, I'll tell you what it's like for most everybody who joins. Um, it's for enlisting. So my, my path is pretty atypical to be enlisted first and then become an officer. That, that happens plenty, but it's, but most of the time officers come from straight out of college, you know, or, or some civilian job that they've had after college. So, um, my buddy and I both wanted to be seals. We went to the recruiting office, you know, first to take a test. It's kind of like a little ACT. They call it the ASVAB. Some people take it anyway. Some high schools like offer it and, and, but mine didn't. So I went and took it like that day when I went to the recruiting office, me and my buddy did. So, um, and what your scores are determine what jobs you're eligible for. And, you know, uh, they take you to um, MEPS. I forget what that acronym is, but there's like a, a station, like a recruiting home, like hub, like all over the country. And like in the Southeast, it's in Nashville. Gotcha. And we happen, and I happen to be from 25 minutes from Nashville. So it was, you know, a short little trip. Some people flew in from like, you know, Louisiana and stuff to come to the, the MEPS in Nashville. But anyway, Damn. Once you take your ASVAB and you pass a drug test and you do a physical, like they, they do a, like a head to toe physical and they look at your medical history and all that. And as long as, you know, red flags would be things like if you're nuts, you know, if you have some history of mental uh, health issues, uh, some of them are disqualifying. Some of them require some follow up, but aren't mm. disqualifying, you know, same thing with like everything that's ever happened to you, you got to explain They're Like, Oh, it says you broke your leg when you were 12. What was that all about? And you're like, eh, it's fine now. And you got to oh, prove really? that it's fine. And, and oh. you know, and it, and it depends on how picky they are. If world war three kicked off tomorrow, they'd be taking everybody. Yeah, you could, be, for sure. you, could, you could fail the drug test. You could have a gimp gimpy leg. They would take it. You know what I mean? But, yeah. but for now we can be more picky because uh, we're a little undermanned in some communities, uh, a little overmanned in some other communities, but anyways, um, Basically, you go to the you go to MEPS and and some some person sits with you and tells you what options you have based on your scores, and and 
you put in, you basically tell them what you want. And you got to sign a contract. So they're trying to, they're kind of like a salesman. They're trying to convince you to join. So they're trying to give you what you want, but at the same time, the Navy has needs. So, you know, for me, I, I have a bad eye. My right eye is just garbage. Um, it's not correctable with, uh, with glasses. It's actually a brain problem, but my left eye is perfect. Right eye sucks. So I was not physically qualified for Navy SEALs right off the bat. And they told me that. So, but like I said, I was screwed. So I had to, I couldn't just not join the Navy. <laughs> so I, uh, but I, I got a 97 on that ASVAB. So they gave me, you know, there's something called, we call it nuke. It's like a nuclear, uh, so nuclear submarines and, and aircraft carriers, they, they have nuclear power plants on board and that's how they, they, they propel themselves and how they make power, right. uh, on those ships. Uh, so those, those technicians that those enlisted people who work on the plant, they're called nukes. We call them nukes in the Navy. And, uh, so it's a long pipeline, like a two plus years of schooling before you can go out to your ship and start qualifying on it. So I got, you know, since I, did, I got a really high score and they offered me a big old bonus, um, which I never got, but whatever, they offered it. Uh, I joined <laughs> as a nuke and my buddy, he did sign a SEAL contract and he went to boot camp a couple months before me. He did go to Bud's and uh, he made it a couple weeks through into it, I think. And then he, he DOR'd, so, or he dropped on request. He rang the bell, yeah. but you know, he, you know, he, he doesn't like it when I uh, tell him not to feel bad, but you know, he, you know, there's no shame in that. Like 80% of them do that. And these are like the best men in our country. And like 80% of them can't hack it, you know, can't go through without ringing the bell. So, you know, there's no shame in that, but he tried and he gave it the old college try and he was proud of that. But anyway, that's beside the point you sit after you sign the contract, you're on hold. They call it uh dep delayed entry program. It's so basically as long as it takes for your boot camp class to, to, to class up. It's like, it depends on how backed up it is. And some people are in the delayed entry program for like a few weeks, some for a lot of months. For me, it was six months. That was, that was kind of on the long range, but there were some people that had longer than me. Um, and my friend went two months before me. So we only had four months. So, uh, so yeah, then you go to boot camp. It's about eight weeks long in the Navy for the other branches. And, and the DEP program is very similar for all the different branches. The boot camps are different for all four branches. Um, they, they each have their own little thing because the branches have different missions and they do different things. And so because of that, their boot camps are different. And then, then after boot camp, you go to your initial training, like your school. We call it a school in the Navy where you learn your job. So I was a nuke and I was an electrician's mate. That's what they called my uh, job. So I went, I went and learned about electricity and, and how, to, you know, you know, I learned who the electrons work for. That's, that's what I, what I like <laughs> to say it, but, um, but yeah. Uh, and that was about six months for me. And then I ended up while I was still in that nuclear training pipeline, I got selected for the Naval Academy and that that's a lot. That's, that's not typical. That's not the, the typical story, but usually after you finish your A school, you'll go off to your first ship or your first duty station at that point. So about, about six months to a year after you join in the first place, when you go to, after you go to boot camp, is when you'll get out, you'll go out to your first ship or your first duty station. Wow. So, and, and so how long ago before you went to your 
how long ago did you go to your first duty station? That's how many so, years. Yeah, I've uh it was 2010 when I enlisted, January 2010. I went oh. to boot camp. So I got to nuke school when, in 2010 as well in March. And it was actually 2011 when I got selected and, and went to the Naval Academy. So okay. uh, that was four years long, four-year bachelor's degree program, along with you know a lot of other stuff uh, besides just school. Yeah. Um, and uh and yeah my first my first tour as an officer uh after i was finished training and finally ready to go contribute was 2015. um so it's been four years since i actually in about a month i'm going to promote to lieutenant nice like, uh, lieutenant junior grade right now i'll promote get a pay raise you know make that money and uh you know because it's it's automatic at four years after you after you commission wow that's a cool story, man. Yeah, it's good to hear just uh, what the process is like. And, you know, I've read books and podcasts about it and stuff, too. But, you know, I um, I don't know. I guess one last question before we – well, first of all, like um, one of the things – I've never even looked into it, but uh, is the idea of a, a nuclear uh, reactor on a, on a submarine as scary as it sounds – no, 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 it's not. <laughs> okay, I figured that. One thing, one thing that a benefit that I have, even though I, I left that pipeline and and I've totally left the nuclear world behind me, and and for good reason. I wanted to because it's really tough. It's not just that it's hard. Like, I would have been a submariner, and and submarine life is is really hard. And yeah. I, my, my hats off to those guys. They are among the most either masochistic or <laughs> you know brave people <laughs> because it is. Uh, it is uh it is a tough life and uh you don't get to see the sun for like months and months oh. and, you know Whoa. they go on these patrols they don't know where they are like you literally don't know where in the world where you are sometimes and and uh especially the guys working in the in the engine room the nukes you know they they uh it's not they gotta they basically have to bribe these people with giant bonuses because nobody wants to keep <laughs> doing it and uh so anyway i got out of that but I got to learn quite a bit about it. And what I, I have the benefit now when I see in public life, people talking about nuclear is just how little people understand nuclear power. Hmm. It's not scary. There's nothing to be scared of. And especially in the U S like if you're negligent, if you're reckless, then yeah, it can be tough, but literally like the Navy nuclear power, which has been around since the 1960s, uh, maybe late fifties. I think the first, it probably started in the late fifties, but the first ships that were nuclear powered were in the sixties, I believe. Um, they, we've never had a nuclear accident, never in the history of the Navy's nuclear power program. Have we released fission products as in radioactive material, uh, or the radiation from that material into the atmosphere, into the environment. We've even had two submarines, nuclear submarines have sunk. They're sitting at the bottom of the ocean and still not leaking any, anything into the surrounding area because we do such a good job. Uh, now, places like Japan, when you had the Fukushima accident right. several years ago, that that plant itself was like 40 years old and the techno the type of plant they had was antiquated and you know, so if you're less if you're more careless, then yeah, things can happen. But even Fukushima, as bad as it was, you know, actually didn't result in much as far as loss of life, you know, damage to property. Um, but uh, yeah, even the worst case examples in America aren't actually that bad. Like Chernobyl's awful, but the Russians just suck at everything. And, and they're horrible at things like, you know, 
quality control and safety, you know, so, you know, and it was a long, long time ago. So the point is people are scared of nuclear. They shouldn't be. Um, it's, it's very clean. Uh, it's very safe. Obviously if things go wrong, they can go horribly wrong, but it, right. but what will never happen is a nuclear reactor will never explode like a nuclear bomb. Okay. If it mm. explodes, it'll be because it got really hot. Like, and it won't be like a, it's not a nuclear explosion. Um, now, if it melts down and you end up releasing fission products into the atmosphere or into the environment, you know, that can, that can cause damage to health and, and the environment, but it's, uh, it is so unlikely. And even if it happens, there's so many fail safes and stuff that, to keep us all safe. So, so no, not even a little, and they even walk around with little dose dosimeters, little mm. meters on them that, yeah. that track how much radiation they get. And it could be propaganda, but I was told in the training pipeline that down on a submarine, you actually get less radiation than you get up on the surface because we're all being bombarded with, you know, radio waves, microwaves, you know, ultraviolet rays and, you know, now and Bluetooth and all this stuff. You yeah. know? So we're being blasted by radiation constantly. Hmm. Now, granted, those wavelengths are harmless, but the point is, just being in the sun and being out and about with the sun shining, you get more radiation, you get more of a dose than they get down on the submarine working every day. So there's certainly parts of the, of the, of the plant that they're not allowed to go into while it's on because then you get destroyed. Right. right. But you just don't go in there. <laughs> right. Well, and unless you shut down the reactor and then, then you can go in there. So anyways, uh, no, it's not scary. Wow. You learn a lot and you learn how, how like the media and Hollywood has, has turned it in. It's almost like jaws. I really feel like jaws is analogous. What jaws did to sharks is what like, you know, every movie yeah. that talks about nuclear power or Hunt anything. For Red October, with, you know, right. yeah. All those movies. Yeah. Right. It's done that with nuclear power, like, you know, or nuclear bombs in general have done that with nuclear power. Oh, like okay. People, yeah. Good people point. think nuclear and they get scared. You yeah. Know? So it shouldn't be. Yeah. Okay. All right, so we're going to talk about your your podcast and the Constitution uh, for a little bit. But, um, you know, one thing I try to ask, you know, whoever I get on here is, you know, one of the reasons I started my channel and stuff is um, just, uh, you know, I notice a, a problem with discourse. And, you know, a lot of people have the same story and stuff. They get in a lot of fights with other people and, uh, you know, fights with their family over, you know, whoever political figure and whatever issue, you know. And so I'm just wondering how were uh, political and cultural is issues discussed growing up for you, like your family, the dinner table, if at all. Th those issues weren't really discussed with mine at all, to be honest. But how were yeah. things for you growing up like that? Yeah, um, my parents, both of them. So I grew up I was I lived with my mom until I was about 13 and then I lived with my dad until I went off to college. They were never together or when they were, I was a little baby. So yeah. I live with my mom separately and then I live with my dad separately. And um, neither of them were ever very political. I, I think I learned a lot of first principles, yeah. uh, obviously from them. Everyone does. But I mean, they expressed these first principles, but and these first principles are generally in line with what I would call. um <sighs> Well, I thought I had a word for it, maybe conservative, but not quite. Um, I know like most of my family certainly vote Democrat because they're mostly poor and poor people disproportionately vote Democrat. But um, they so it just it wasn't discussed. We didn't talk about it. Uh, my dad, 
again, I was 13 when I moved in with him. He did hate George Bush. And then he hated Barack Obama. And I'm sure he hates Donald Trump. So it's, you know, we haven't talked about Donald Trump. But point, he's not political. He just mm. doesn't trust, uh, you know, he, he just he just assumes everyone has the worst intentions. So, and he's probably, you know, that's probably a, a safe way to think about things, even if it's not true, but, yeah. uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, so they didn't teach me my politics. That's for sure. And I kind of, I kind of, I kind of figured it out like late high school. I started thinking more about it. Um, and, uh, then I went to college and, uh, you know, that's really where I started getting into it. So for me, it, it had very little to do with my upbringing, at least, with my upbringing, my first principles, which do guide my politics. But specifically, I, I wasn't taught to be a Democrat, to be a Republican, to be anything like that. Uh, we, it didn't come up, you know. I didn't. I, I don't. I still don't even know a lot of my parents' positions on things. First about, you know, it's just an interesting kind of, yeah, either generational or cultural thing. I don't know, but I'm gonna. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love talking about it. I mean, I, I don't plan on being apolitical with my children. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm not going to tell them what to do, but it's actually kind of super important to me that I instill the right values. And, you know, you know, I'm not going to, so yeah, I'm not going to be like, you are a Republican or you are a Democrat, but right. it certainly, you know, I'm, I have a whole podcast where I talk about what's going on in, you know, politics and, you know, mostly related to the constitution. Uh, I don't just jabber on about whatever's going on every day, but you know, uh, I don't plan on hiding any of that from my children. I want, I want them to learn that stuff. Um, I want them to, I want them to be like me, but what parent doesn't want that? I mean, if you think, if you think you got it right and everyone else has it kind of wrong, you know, you want to, you know, you want to make sure your kids get it right too. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's actually a perfect transition to my first question about your podcast. And uh, like I said earlier, I'm, I'm definitely a fan of it and everyone out there should check it out. If you're looking for a good source on, you know, the constitution and a lot of us either skipped or didn't get civics when we were, we were younger, but um, you know, your, your podcast on unalienable basically breaks down the constitution topic by topic, or, you know, there's things about like the general welfare clause and free speech, second amendment and the border situation and stuff like that. First question is, uh, uh, how many of the problems in this nation do you think would be eased if everyone had an understanding of what was in the constitution and what it meant? Man, I, <laughs> I can't even think, I mean, I'm sure there's a problem out there that exists that couldn't be solved by constitutionalism, but, uh, I can't think of one like any now what may be the case is that you may not like the answer, you know, you or me or someone else may not like the solution that the constitution calls for, but it would just end the problem for mm. sure. So I think 90 plus percent of our problems could be solved if we adopted a more originalist take and actually abided by the constitution. And it's, you know, so, I mean, that's, that's one reason why I think we should care what the constitution says and what it means is because it can solve a lot of these problems. But then another reason is um, if we don't take it seriously, then there is no bulwark. There is no, you know, there's nothing stopping the worst of things from happening because you, you see it all the time, right? You see Democrats be, say, this is unconstitutional. That's unconstitutional. You can't do this because of the constitution. And then the next day they're trampling all over the constitution for some other issue that they don't 
feel the same way about. And then Republicans do the exact same thing. It's just a different issue, right? Uh, what you see constantly, what's, what they all seem to agree on when they're actually in power is that that our rights are like a secondary matter and what's more important is whatever their particular agenda is, mm. right? So I think you see a lot of people crying constitution, uh, politicians, when they're in the minority and they know they can't win, right? When, when they're in charge, see what they have to say about the constitution. Nothing, nothing at all, right? So I think, uh, I think people are guilty of this too and not just politicians. Um, I think we, you see it a lot on the right. Um, I'm not saying I am, I'm not a Republican, but I'm certainly, there are more conservative people in my circles than liberals. Um, so I see this a lot. I see a lot of people who are very pro second amendment, you know, and have, and, and the constitution is their main talking point in defense of gun rights as it should be. But then when it comes to something else, if, if they don't, if it's not a topic they care about, then they'll drop it. So you see this a lot with Trump supporters, right? So if it comes to eminent domain or, you know, building the wall, then they're like, you know, yes, please tax us, steal people's property, build a wall. But then, when, but then, you know, their next tweet, you know, like a few days later, when the Democrats try and pass some tax raise, they'll say taxation is theft. You know what I mean? Mm. So it's like, I think the problem is, and I think I mentioned this with, with uh, Matt Christensen, is that people are, I think, largely the Americans are guilty of being consequentialist and unprincipled. Like, we think we have principle. Time, people are principled. But, but if, if a principle that they have stands in the way of some consequence or outcome that they want, then they pretend it doesn't exist. It's kind of like doublethink. It's not mm. that they, they drop the principle. They just find it's like mental gymnastics to either pretend to ignore it when the, when it's inconvenient or to find some, you know, again, mental gymnastic way to make, to make it work, to square the circle. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's our problem. And, and, uh, too many people are too willing to use government force to make, to get things their way. And, and the constitution doesn't really let us use government force to do much at all. Yeah. yeah and also it, it, it's just when, when people do that, it, it just seems like it's such a blind eye to the future because, you know, once there's a precedent set, then, you know, whoever in the future, when you're out of power, or whoever the bad person is in, is in power can kind of use that at that point. You, you know, that's kind of what, um, I don't know. Actually, before I even ask this next one, um, you mentioned an originalist perspective perspective uh, earlier. What is um is there a difference between an originalist and a textualist perspective? Um, <clears throat> I think there is, but there. Um, <clears throat> it seems to me that there. <laughs> sorry. <clears throat> oh, water went down the wrong pipe. <clears throat> That's the beauty of live show. Yeah. Um. Oh. Anyway. <laughs> uh. So I think, I think you can't be a, it's at least speaking from like a judge, right? So if you have a, I think of textualists in more of a, uh, like when it comes to Supreme court justices or judges, um, sorry about that. the, uh, a, an originalist is, is exactly what it sounds like. It's the, it's that the original intent of whoever draft, and it's, it's not just the constitution, this applies to all law. 
um, any amendment to the Constitution, any law that's come from that. And this is what judges' job is supposed to be, is to try and try and extrapolate what they meant, you know what I mean? The meaning of what, you know, the, the, le the legislature who passed whatever it was, what they meant by it. So uh, an originalist is a person who gives the most, most judicial weight or moral weight to, uh, to the intention of the people who wrote and ratified or passed whatever law or the constitution. A textualist is someone who, uh, and, and, and they're related, certainly, but I think of a textualist as someone who, um, who reads the exact words and doesn't extrapolate more. Like, so you could, I guess it's, it's, it's conceivable to be a, an originalist and not be a textualist. Like you can be like, what did they mean by this? You know, and you really do care and that's what you're trying to get at, but you're still inferring a lot of things hmm. that aren't in the text. Right. So, um, that's, so I think a textualist, like a judge, like people think of, Brett Kavanaugh, for example, and uh, and you know some of the other people that were that were possible candidates for this the most recent Supreme Court justice, as basically all being context or sorry textualists, meaning from a judge's standpoint, they don't their own judgment and their own sort of opinions about what's right and what's not and what's just and what's unjust don't actually matter. And to what matters is what the duly elected legislature that passed that law meant by it or what they wrote. So I think they're related and generally originalists are textualists and textualists are originalists. It's mm -hmm. conceivable, I think, to not be both, but. Are there, are there terms for the opposite? Uh, or is that just per, like a person that doesn't know what they're doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, we call it, uh, it, they're kind of derogatory terms. We, we say like, activists for example when we're talking about judges yeah um if you call an if you call a judge an activist judge there's no good context not like, good yeah only their opponents say that you know people who like what they had to say won't call them you know activists um but their opponents will call them activists right so um that's i think very few would admit to it but there's got to be another word because I'm sure someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg would not dare call herself an originalist or a textualist, but she sure she probably doesn't call herself a uh, you know an activist. So um, persuaded or uh, yeah, you know, leading yeah. I do know that when it comes to questions of construction, meaning like the, the like the meaning of the Constitution, so in. in in the context of the Constitution, you can be a strict constructionist or a loose constructionist. And I think in that way, a strict constructionist is a lot more like an originalist. They they take it. They It's basically you don't believe the Constitution is a living document. If you're a strict constructionist, that means that you believe, you know, it means what they said it means. And to change it, we have to amend it. And a loose constructionist tries to find tries to squeeze whatever meaning they can out of the words and so they're still using the constitution and the and the words they're just they're picking they're picking meanings that aren't very likely what was meant by the and they don't and they don't put a lot of weight on what was originally meant uh they might even they might even argue that the founders intended to be vague and they intended for people to you know 
to uh, extrapolate whatever they whatever they could out of it, which is nonsense. But that might be what they're trying to say. Mm. So, so I think loose constructionist is the best. Yeah, that's not a uh, derogatory term right. for it. But yeah, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a complete synonym or if it's just similar. But so, so is that how you see the um, basically the Supreme Court justices working in your perfect world? Then they would all be just originalist, uh, you know, founders intent, you know, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think any judge period, like at any level, shouldn't be making, they call it legislating from the bench when a judge uses their own intuition or their own predilections, you know, to to decide what should and shouldn't be. Uh, some judges are elected in like states and local whatever courts, but especially at the federal level and definitely the Supreme Court, um, they take an oath to support and defend the Constitution, just like I did. And um, and they have, and their duty is a sacred duty. And I think it shouldn't matter if a liberal or a conservative ends up on the court. They frankly should have a, on a lot of issues. They should, it should be nine to zero, a mm. lot more than it is. Um, the fact that it always breaks down five, four, just really shows how, how political it's become. And, uh, people use their own. I mean, it's, it almost makes sense. Like you might, you can almost understand, right? If if you and me want to make the world a better place and we happen to be lawyers and we happen to be judges and then we get selected for the Supreme Court, how can I make the world a better place? You know, but that's really not their job. Right. Their job is not to make the world a better place. They were not elected. They have, they serve for life. They have no accountability except for to, you know, two thirds of the House and the Senate or two thirds of the Senate can can kick them out of office, right? If they're impeached, that's the only thing that can happen. And that's never going to happen because they're being political. Like, so I think that's the way it should be. Um, if the court was more originalist, then the court would be a lot less powerful. And obviously that's hard to ask a pig to slaughter itself. You know what I mean? Like you're asking them to give up their own power. So I think there are originalist judges on the Supreme Court. Um, I don't buy that. We call them conservative judges. I really don't think that's what it is. They might they might be conservative appointees. They might be uh, conservative politically. But um, I think, you know, and it's not always the case because you see like Justice uh, or Chief Justice Roberts voting in very unoriginalist ways often. He voted, you know, in support of the individual mandate. He said that it was constitutional because it was, you know, a tax and because the court had had no limits on the general welfare clause of of the uh, taxation clause of the uh, Constitution, they, uh, you know, they, he said it's constitutional, which is absolute garbage, right? So he's supposed to be a conservative. He's supposed to be an originalist, right? So not only did he, he choose a not conservative, out, you know, out, output or sorry, outlook conclusion, he also didn't conclude in an originalist or textualist kind of way either. So, you know, these, I think what generally happens is Republicans are just kind of bad at picking Supreme Court justices and Democrats are really good at it. They get super liberal lefty McLefterson judges who completely use their their own ideology to, to determine their rulings. And then, and then the Republicans don't do that. We don't get a lot of, we don't get a lot of super right wing Righty McRiderson, you know, judges who who just use their like 
religion or whatever ideology to, to decide what's right. Um, we get either kind of middle of the road, non-textualist, non but they're kind of moderate. So they, they still go with their gut, but it's a moderate gut. Or we get some originalists who are just way outnumbered. You know what I mean? Like, I think so far it seems that Brett Kavanaugh is, for the most part, a textualist, originalist. And uh, we'll see how that holds up. Uh, so, so, yeah. so uh, you mentioned the individual mandate on Obamacare. Did you read um, I mean, how many of the rulings from the Supreme Court decisions have you have you read? I mean, first of all, before I even ask that, you have one of your episodes on unalienable called uh, Supreme Court, the most dangerous branch of government. And it's got like three question marks like dun, dun, dun next to it. Yeah. Um, did you mean that more tongue in cheek or do you think that it has become the most dangerous branch or most powerful or what, what's your yeah. thoughts on that? Um, I think, I think that, uh, I mean, I got that phraseology from Thomas Jefferson. He wrote, um, in, I, I believe the eight, it was after his presidency. I think he was an old man, but it was in like the 18 teens, I believe. But he wrote that, uh, you know, he, he was, he was critiquing the court uh, the court of John Marshall, you know, the Marbury versus Madison guy who is the reason that the Supreme Court even does this whole judicial review thing where they decide the constitutionality of things. Uh, Thomas Jefferson and basically any uh, anti-federalist and basically any uh, any true, any uh, honest broker and when it, of what it meant or what the constitution meant when they, when they passed it, who wasn't, you, you know, just trying to use their position to gain more power would have said that they did. There was no judicial review was not in the constitution. It wasn't their job. It's not in the constitution for a reason that they are not, they have no power whatsoever ever supposed to, to, to rule legislation unconstitutional. That wasn't like there are three branches they can make rulings all they want to, but they have no enforcement power. And they still actually don't. It's just, you know, we the, the executive branch, legislative branch, they choose to follow. But that hasn't always been the case. There have been times where the other branches have defied the courts because they have no power to actually enforce their rulings. But the point is, Thomas Jefferson said that if I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember the exact it's a long quote, but he basically said if the if the judgment of the of the justices substitutes, you know, like if their own judgment is what instead of like the, the letter of the law, like is what actually matters when it comes to, you know, these decisions, then the, then the Supreme Court would become the most dangerous branch. So he said and, and, and he said that this this it was supposed to be the most. Um, God, what was the word he said? Basically, the least able to oppress of all the branches, but it has become. So by the time Jefferson died, he fully believed that the Supreme court was the most dangerous branch wow. um, because their judgments are not, not really scrutinized by the population, by the masses. Like, cause really it's most people don't really know, including myself, you know, I don't go read every, I mean, they have hundreds of, you know, hundreds of cases, yeah. you know, and, and I don't go read them and whatever, if it happens to tickle my fancy, I'll go, I'll go look into it. Right. But, and most people are the same way, but that he's saying that just a passing dissertation of the chief justice or five of the, of the judges 
becomes law essentially. Yeah. And these people, so by the time he, like he wished, for example, like he was for term limits for a Supreme court justice. He didn't think they should have life, life term, life terms. They shouldn't be declaring anything unconstitutional of the executive branch or the legislative branch, or they shouldn't be able to actually overturn anything, even if they, they can declare all they want to. Um, so it's, you know, it's hard in just a short kind of, uh, interview to fully express why the Supreme Court is the most dangerous branch. Right. But in short, um, I do believe they're the most dangerous branch. And one reason for that is, is that so much of the overreach by the legislature and the, especially the executive is only been allowed because the Supreme Court let it happen right. or made it happen. Yeah. Right. Um, so the fact is they're just they're just people and they're wrong all the time mm. but even when they're wrong the way it works now and this was not the original intent even if they're wrong they're right the supreme court is always right right Ugh. they make they make the rules yeah. and you can see this with with things like um the dred scott case right like in the 1850s when uh, or right before the right before the civil war when uh, they ruled that black people, even freed black people who weren't slaves, could not be citizens. Um, and that was the law of the land. And Lincoln talked about this. Even Lincoln was would say things like, you know, if if like these unelected, you know, judges basically get to make the laws for us, then we no longer rule ourselves. Right. And uh, in express defiance of the Supreme Court of the Dred Scott case, Lincoln gave out passports to to black Americans. Uh, he, you know, he and then in, also in express defiance to the Dred Scott case, the uh, the. Uh, the Congress, the, they passed laws during the Civil War that or right before whatever um, around that time where you could no longer that stopped new slave states from coming, you know, because it yeah. was we had the compromise where north of the Mason-Dixon line they, and you had to have one free and one slave state for right. a long time. But then we basically they over they, they, they overturned that law, which was against the Dred Scott case as well. They basically banned any new states uh, from from having slavery. And so twice, like there was a legislature and the executive branch both said, screw you, Supreme Court. It wasn't until the 13th, 14th and 15th Amendment were passed that the Dred Scott case was technically over overturned, right? The Supreme Court was just wrong. And then they were wrong again on Plessy versus Ferguson when they decided that the when the 14th Amendment says, uh, you know, equal protection under the law, that separate but equal is still equal. That was the Supreme Court that did that. Right. right. Granted, there's a lot of buttholes that liked that and wanted that to happen, who had a lot of power. But that is a the fact that all they have to do is say it is so and then it's so led to another hundred years of despotism for black people in America after mm -hmm. the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendment were passed, which were meant to make them equal, equal citizenship, like equal rights. They should have been at that point. And we had two, there were like two congressmen elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in like the 1870s, 1860s. And then it was another, it was several decades again before another black person was elected to Congress, you know, because in the South is where they won. And then in the South is where separate but equal meant equal again, all of a sudden. So they've been wrong so many times and it's had such horrible consequences. 
and so much of our loss of property rights and the giant size of government, including, you know, the welfare state, uh, whatever, if you name a problem you have with the government, the federal government is doing more than they should. If you think they shouldn't be, I don't know, it's easy for conservatives to say, but there's even things liberals don't want the government doing, right? Um, like maybe, I don't Wire, know. Wiretapping or... Sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's always the Supreme Court that basically lets it happen. So, and we can, we can, we can thank the Supreme Court for, you know, the giant welfare state, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all of those are an expansive interpretation of the General Welfare Clause. Yeah. Uh, none of that was conceivable to people even a hundred years ago like that. Of course the government can't do that. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, and not that all these things are, are absolute bads, but we're, they're about to be insolvent and we're going to go broke. You know what I mean? So as good intentioned as they may be, they have been a failure, you know? Mm. So, wow. Well, I mean, there's certainly a lot here. I mean, we said we would go for about an hour and I have a ton of questions, but, uh, you know, I'm going to ask you a few more things about your uh, podcast. We're going to get out of here, but I'd love to have you back on to talk about, you know, I I could totally, you know, go through the list of each one of your episodes and just talk about each one. It's really fascinating. So how about this? I'll I'll go as long as you want uh, until Game of Thrones, which is another hour from now. Cool. And uh, whenever we have to whenever you want to stop, we yeah, I'm more than happy to come back. All right. Sounds good. So um, I'll try to be less long winded. Oh, that's fine. No, it's fascinating, man. Yeah, please do. Um, So see what I got here. Um, Oh, yeah. So the um, we talked a little bit about the um, founders intent and stuff like that. And I guess what we can touch on for a couple minutes is just a little Second Amendment. Um, Yeah, I moderated a gun control debate on uh, the YouTube channel uh, Generational Gap a couple weeks ago, and uh, a lot of my questions for other people is, is about the Second Amendment and gun rights and stuff like that. So what was your um, – well, for, I, I guess before I even ask that, how much research do you have to do to do this podcast correctly? Is a lot of it for, drawing from previous knowledge, or do you really hit the books hard for each episode? So I'm, I'm trying to, to find the right balance because at first – I every episode was, was pretty long. I mean, some of them were like a half hour. Most of them were about a half hour. Uh, but then I had this hour and a half, uh, these really long ones. And uh, my purpose of the show from the beginning was to, to, to not be the kind of person who just gives these talking points, who gives these, uh, I call them bumper sticker slogans right like if you can fit your ideology on a bumper sticker it isn't very well thought out Mm. or you're just being lazy and maybe like so let's talk about the nuance so um i think my i guess what i wanted to do because i you know there's a ton of people talking about the second amendment and that that was one of the first things i did it wasn't the very first thing i talked about free speech first and before that i had a bit of an intro episode but it was the first thing i really dove really hard into but what I wanted to do was be completely exhaustive and thorough and cover everything. I didn't want to leave any stone unturned. And that's kind of how I treat every episode um, is, you know, I don't want to leave any stone unturned. I want to be so right that there's just nothing left to argue about. Like, I mean, I, I, I want to, so what I like say when I start with the gun one, for example, um, I not only, it took me a lot of research. It took me a long time. I had to find, I found a lot of different stuff to read. I found a lot of, I found a lot of anti-gun stuff to read as well. I found a lot of their arguments so I could then go ahead and just address those arguments 
during, cause it's a monologue, my podcast, I have a dialogue podcast I do with my buddy uh, called philosophication oh. with ginger and the beard. Cool. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, you know, you can find the links on my own, on my podcast sites and stuff, but uh, so that's like dialogue kind of like this, but it's a monologue. So it's not really an argument. I'm trying to lay, I'm trying to make the case. I'm trying to make the case and I don't want to leave anything out because, uh, and it's not, and I learn so much as I'm researching, I, I might have an idea or maybe even a, a, a preconceived notion when I, when I start something, but so many times when I've done these episodes, my opinion actually changes as before I even get to start recording, like it's never completely done a 180, but it certainly can shift it. You know what I mean? Um, and with the gun thing, that was certainly the case. Like, um, like for example, when I was doing research, I found some, some laws that would be considered gun control that I wasn't opposed to as much, or I would, I was okay with under certain stipulations. You know what I mean? Where at first I was just absolutely not, nothing is okay. Um, and, uh, so it's very thorough. Um, I spend a lot of time, but when I said before, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure this out, find the right balance is because it's so thorough. I don't come up these up. Ep the episodes don't happen very often. I mm. spend weeks working on them and uh, I do a lot of research, a lot of reading, a lot of what I have. I have a lot of quotes. I have a lot of history. You know what I mean? Especially with, you know, when I'm talking about the, the founders, what they meant when they said, I got to find this, this kind of first, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, primary like sources or first primary accounts, sources. Yeah. Exactly. That's the word. That's exactly what I was looking for. Thank you. Um, the primary sources and, um, you know, I don't start with primary sources. I literally start with Google and it takes me all mm. over the place. Uh, and I find, I eventually get to these primary sources, but what I found is sometimes I'm a little behind the curve and I don't like that. Like, so, um, I started this other type of show. So now I still do these long, this long form monologues where I get really thorough and talk and I make the case ad nauseum. Like I don't leave any stone unturned. Um, and that's what I, so I started that with the gun thing. I think I did a good job. I don't think I left any stone unturned. I'm not saying I'm, I'm right. And everyone else is wrong, but I'm saying I, if, if it, if I heard the argument about it, if you know, whether it was what types of guns were allowed to have or uh, if individuals versus a versus a collective right to bear arms, uh, militia, this militia, that like I, every little thing I found it, found both sides of it and kind of articulated my own, you know, my own uh, opinion of it. And uh, I'd really try not to leave anything unturned. So, uh, but with this other type of episode, I called it gut reaction and I've yeah. done like three of them and they're much shorter. And I actually, spend the time to make videos out of them instead of just audio. Um, so like I, you know, I put, I put, uh, you know, little clips and like maybe other little video clips or images or, uh, you know, whatever. I, I put a lot of work into it to make a, a video, but it's a lot shorter. Um, so for those, I, I made about a couple of 15 minute ones. And even that it's just, so it's really more supposed to be a YouTube centric audience for that because uh, the other ones are half hour hour and YouTube is just not great for that. You know, like it's great for people that are already a fan of yours, but when people are flipping through and they see something that's an hour long, even if it looks interesting, they're less likely to click on it. But if it's right. five minutes, they might be like, Oh, that looks interesting. They'll click on it. So point is I'm trying to get into that as well. So my most recent episode was like 
eight minutes or whatever. And, and uh, it was about Ilhan Omar mm -hmm. and President Trump and this inciting violence thing. Right. But uh, so I'm trying to do both. I'm trying to do the, that doesn't take a lot of research. It's kind of a gut thing. And I, I kind of like, here's what is going on. And I, and I draw on some some sources that are more like media type of sources and what people are talking about unless the facts and then I'll use some some first principle generally hmm. whether it be in this most recent one it's the harm principle right. talking about free speech essentially and that you know you don't get to just say people are inciting violence and then just to shut down conversation and that's it so you know I basically both and so like anytime I'm working on these short ones they something pops up I'll try and like come up with something short. I'm like, I, I have the long game in mind as well. Like on the back burner, currently I'm working on like an abortion episode and I've been working yeah. on it for months and I have a long way to go. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it'll be a long time before that one comes out. But in the meantime, I'll have these quicker ones, you know, that don't take as long. So, um, so yeah, but I think I don't want to give that up because I think that's what might make me kind of unique is being so thorough and yeah. being and trying to get both sides and not leaving any stone unturned. You know, I still, I still get some argument back at me, you know, in, in the comments and stuff, but I'd like to think I get a lot less because they already know the answer to the question that they had because I answered it. Like, mm. you know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, cool. whether they agree or not. Yeah, I mean that's it's kind of one of the things I I like the most about your podcast is how in depth you go and how how balanced it is. It can you know considering how uh, potentially inflammatory all these issues are, and um, it's one one of the things I liked about the the gut reaction one about Trump and Ilan Omar is you just don't get a lot of people in 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 media. I mean, you're not the people in mainstream media aren't paid to do this, but saying that kind of both sides did something wrong, but here's either my take or here's uh yeah here's what the the, the mo what what is what the law actually says and there's just not enough people in media doing that and i i guess yeah. we're in we're whether we like it or not a part of media now which is yeah. a weird thing to think about yeah. um but yeah i definitely appreciate doing both um and uh those gut reactions and and i'd invite everyone out there to check out the podcast it's really informative pretty balanced and um, do you consider yourself a, a conservative or like conservative values? You said you're not a Republican, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not a Republican. Uh, I, I, it's actually really tough. Everyone has problems. I'm not like some hipster doesn't like, I don't like labels. It's not really what it is. I just, <laughs> I'm genuinely confused about what. Yeah, I am, it's but, so confusing, dude. But I, yeah. what I know beyond a doubt is that I am a constitutionalist and yeah. I am, I am a federalist, right? Those are two things I know I am. Those aren't parties and those aren't even, those are more like, like first principle ideologies or whatever than they are. Well, not exactly first principle, especially federalism, but, right. and so what stems from that ends up being very close to libertarianism. Um, I think like John Stuart Mill is kind of like my, uh, is like my moon and stars. Like he's my guiding light. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and that's obviously very libertarian. I don't yeah. know if he would call himself a libertarian. He's also like the, the, the father of uh, utilitarianism, which is not exactly a political ideology, but, and it has its uses. I'm not a utilitarian, but uh, his, uh, the harm principle, I think it, the harm principle, whether you like it or not, it basically is the foundation of, of, civilized government, whether you want it to be or not, whether you think it's enough or not, it is the foundation. That's not even like arguable. When you think about any crime, 
why is it a crime? You know, it's because you're harming somebody like mm. nine times out of and the, crimes exist right. with no victim. Right. But you think about, and then you think of limiting your rights and every right that exists, every limit on every right we have always is you could draw the harm principle, at least in America, that's the way it should be. Right. And some other countries don't adhere so much to those rights, like free speech. And that's why hate speech and stuff like that is banned in certain countries. And right. Misgendering can get you a fine and stuff like that in other countries. But the point is, um, I think libertarian is close enough. Um, I think I'm a little less isolationist than a libertarian. I'm in the military. I'm not terribly anti anti war. I'm anti war in the way in the meaning that we shouldn't go to war unless we need to. Right. That's the way I feel about it. But need to, uh, to me, doesn't mean we just stick our head in the sand. And I'm not saying libertarians do that, but there are some that libertarians are so, there is no central, like, libertarian. There's only, like, one thing they all believe, and that is that taxation is theft, right. essentially. You know, you yeah. can name, like, two or three things that they all believe, mm. and from there, they, they spread out and have all kinds of opinions. Yeah. But uh, some of them are very anti-military, and I've met some of these people, and, uh, you know, that I am not. Uh, I'm not ashamed of American greatness on the world stage, and I don't want to shy away from that. I'm very uh, FDR. Not, okay. Sorry. Nothing like FDR. Screw FDR. I'm very Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. Too. I was like, whoa. <laughs> uh, wow. Okay. Not that FDR's foreign policy was the worst. Uh, you know, he did do the World War II thing. Very yeah. impressive. But anyway, uh, <laughs> FDR foreign policy. I, I like the idea of carrying a big stick, uh, speaking softly, carrying a big stick. That doesn't mean we should go intervene in everyone's wars, but we should be the biggest, baddest ass military in the world. And we should keep that going, I think. That doesn't mean we have to spend so much. Right. doesn't mean we need to have a thousand times bigger, you know, military than the next guy. But uh, a world where someone like China or Russia is the, is the most powerful country is not a good world for anybody. Mm. So I, I buy that, that part of American greatness and exceptionalism. I, I buy it. So I, I don't fit the libertarian um, sort of mold in that way, mm. but I'm a federalist and a constitutionalist. Undoubtedly. I have no doubt about those two things okay. where else I fall. I'm not, you know, it's kind of up in the air. Cool, man. Well, I do I, think nine times out of 10, eight times out of 10, Republicans are the lesser of two evils. Mm. That's how I feel about it. Uh, most, not just presidential elections, any given time. I'm scared of, I'm more scared of a Democrat controlled Congress than I am a Republican controlled Congress. Not that I'm not scared of a Republican controlled Congress. I am. And they've done plenty, you know, that, to make us afraid, but mm. yeah especially with this new like social justice intersectional sort of coalition that is gaining prominence on the left. Yeah. Uh, I do worry about that, especially yeah. pretty scary. Yeah. So, I mean, that's actually, I only have a couple of questions left and then we're going to wrap things up, but that's actually a good transition to my next one um, is it, kind of your view on voting. I mean, you know, obviously citizens are granted the right to vote. 18 and up all that stuff but you know uh you know when you talk to people about voting it's one of the most uh cliche ridden things you can talk about there's all these different sayings like you know uh you know one man one vote uh you know lesser yeah. of two evils gets thrown around i mean so i, I kind of separate say you know in my journal and stuff just kind of um 
separated them into a few different categories like utopian pragmatic and tribal you know like you know if you vote too utopian you know your vote isn't going to count you're basically you could write in mickey mouse if you want you know pragmatic is kind of the lesser of two evils approach and then there's just the kind of what feels better like on a cultural level or ideological but you know it's not uh I don't know. Voting is not in the first five five amendments. You know, it's so it's not like, you know, I don't think the people who made the Bill of Rights necessarily saw that as uh, I don't know. Like, what are your thoughts on the founders intent behind that? And, you know, what what how you see the whole voting situation? Voting is really interesting because uh, it's not actually the the founders didn't really talk about voting. Right. At all. Like it didn't come up until the. Oh my God, which one is it? Uh, 13th, 14th, the 15th Amendment is about voting. The 14th Amendment has a voting provision in there saying that any state that deprives someone of voting, uh, a citizen from voting because of their color or race will be deprived, like they'll lose representation in the House. Exactly. I actually keep a constitution yeah. right here so yeah yeah i got one in my pocket of my oh, uniform nice every day. okay uh, yeah. great yeah uh yeah people make fun of me for it but <laughs> um anyways uh so the 14th amendment is really the first time that voting uh, individual voting is addressed right. uh it says in article one that the house of representatives will be chosen by the people and that's and then it, and it says that the that basically the requirements for voting or for running are the same in the house as they are for your state legislature. So basically your state decides what voting criteria are, what, what voting, like who gets to vote when you vote, all that stuff, uh, how voting works. It was, and it does say in the constitution uh, in article one as well, that the Congress can make laws about voting to kind of, to make it, that they have the power to make voting regulations that apply across the board, but that if they don't, it's just, it's just something the States do on their own. Mm. And what's funny is up until the 17th amendment, only the house of representatives was voted by the people. Um, there was a popular election for the president, but just like now it doesn't actually matter. Like it matters because that's how you pick your, your, that's how a state. How this, that's how the states have chosen to give their elect their to choose their electors is by the popular vote in their state. But that was not protected by the founders. The founders did not believe in a democracy. They believed in a republic, and they and they believed the people. And this is this is painfully obvious. If you just look at the at the actual construction of the Constitution and the and the separation of powers, is the states and the people are two different things with two different goals and aspirations, and mm. the states have to be the constitution guarantees that the state governments that the states give a republican form of government meaning that it's still ruled by the people but the states decide how to do that so the people in a way choose their state representation one way or another and different states do it differently and then those states have their own sort of ambition and reasons for doing things and it's not necessarily identical to the will of the people so the people have the House of Representatives. The states pick the Senate. They did, by the way, until the 17th Amendment was passed. The state, the states decided, state legislatures picked the senators. Like the U.S. Senate was selected by the state legislature of their state. And they served, you know, they could keep serving until basically the state legislator 
legislature stop picking them, right? Um, so, and then for the presidency, that's that's one that totally blows me away because people just don't get it. Like, and it's kind of it's bizarre to me when people say this isn't very democratic. It's like okay. So this also isn't very monarchic. It's yeah. not the point. We're not a democracy. We're not yeah. a monarchy. Like we are what we are. And that is a federalist system. And if you, so my thing is, uh, and I actually just recently, cause I'm definitely going to do something about this in some sort of episode about voting um, because it's a lot to talk about, but voting rights was, was left out of the constitution as on individuals, you know what I mean? Until the 14th amendment. Wow. And, right. So like the, the first 10 amendments, nothing to do with voting at all. Um, it just says, so the only thing it says is like this, basically the same rules that, that basically the states decide who gets to vote. Right. Essentially. Um, that's what it says when they talk about choosing the legis the, the house representatives, the people do that. And that the, the requirements for doing that are the same as the state legislature and that's it. So um, after that, when, you know, little by little, and because the states did a bad job at including everybody. So this doesn't just, you think about voting rights. We always think of the presidential election, but when women got the right to vote, that meant also for the House of Representatives and for their state legislatures and for the judge or the sheriff, you know what I mean? It wasn't just the president. Mm. And, and, and it, one state could let women vote and another state could not let women vote. It's like, it was up to them. It wasn't up to the federal government. And that's kind of an important separation of powers. But over time, you know, it didn't work out very well. And then basically once black people were freed, that's where it was a huge issue where people who, you know, and frankly, if, if, you, if we're being a little cynical about it, the Republicans wanted black people voting and Democrats didn't, probably less because of racism and more because they wanted to get elected, right? right. Black people were more likely to vote for Republicans in the 1860s and 70s. And in fact, when it comes to politicians, not people, I almost always assume that their motives are really whatever they're talking about, whether it's the wall or this or that, they really just want to get elected again. Yeah. <laughs> so they want people who won't vote for them. They want them to be less likely to vote and they want people to vote for them to be more likely to vote. So, you know, it's a little cynical. I believe many, I think most people in the North in the sixties, 1860s, 1870s were also racist. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't out of some sense of equality that they wanted black people voting. They wanted them voting so that more Republicans would get elected and Democrats wanted the opposite. So, you know, these Southern Democrats, these, you know, they were trying to stop black people from voting. And um, so, yeah, basically the Republicans had the authority, they had the power, they stepped in and kind of forced the Southern Democrats to to uh, to let the black people vote to stop making it harder and harder for them. So, you know, it was it didn't happen until it was a problem. You know what I mean? And it was a problem for probably at least partly political reasons and less ideological. But obviously, it's a good thing, you know, that we can't, you know, bar certain colored people from voting. Mm. But it, the voting, the suffrage of everybody was a gradual fight that, you know, it took one amendment after another, after another, I think there's like six or seven amendments after like there's 14, 15, uh, 19, 19 yeah. yeah, 19, uh, 
And then there's like two or three more after that. One is like 18 year olds get to vote. Another yeah. is like you get to vote in DC for the president uh, or something, not president, whatever. Yeah. You, however the hell it works. There's a yeah. DC one. Uh, there's a bunch, right? That's where, that's where I live. So yeah, I can right. attest to that. You get to right. Vote. Exactly. <laughs> so what's funny though, and this is very controversial. Okay. But I'll say it. Um, universal suffrage is not a fundamentally American value. That is a very new thing, even yeah. in America. Universal suffrage. And uh, in the 1896 election, which was the first real contested election, George Washington was unanimously chosen for the first two terms. Uh, there wasn't a real campaign. There wasn't a, it wasn't a real con contest, right? So the first real contest was 1896. And eight states even had a popular election. Um, and I believe at the time, I need to Google it actually, I'm pretty sure there were 18 states at that point in the union, maybe 17. So I think there were 18. And eight of them even held an election, like a ballot, a, a popular vote. The rest of them didn't even have one. All right. So no, the founders did not think that people like you and me should be voting for the president. They never yeah. thought that. That was never the intention. And basically it was you decide states however you want to do it. And some states decided, let's have the people vote. And they still didn't have to do winner take all and they didn't. They they picked their electors. In fact, like so it, it's a state by state thing and it just so happens that now every state except for two does winner take all. Hmm. And I think that's the real problem with the with the Electoral College. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that, you know, presidential elections are perfect. They are working as they should. But I would I would say that the winner take all system is the problem and not the Electoral College. So the Electoral College itself is is evident is proof that our founders did not intend for the people to vote for the president. There was no such thing as a popular vote like there wasn't a national popular vote. It didn't exist because 10 states didn't even have one right out of 18. So I don't know. I, I'm going to I'm going to do an episode about this. So I'm going to research more and find out kind of the history of, of how the popular vote has kind of changed over over time. But no, there's nothing fundamentally American about universal suffrage. And in fact, uh, I'm totally fine with everyone having the right to vote. But I do not encourage everyone to vote at all. Mm. I say if you don't know what the hell you're talking about, don't vote. I don't like that's that's I I genuinely mean that. You know, I don't care if you happen to if you're gonna vote for the guy I like. I don't want people who don't know what they're talking about or who have spent zero time thinking about the issues or really diving into it. I don't want them voting. Now mm. I don't want to bar them from voting. I don't wanna I don't wanna test a poll test or something like that. I don't want that. I just I am more than happy to discourage those people from yeah. voting. You know, that's a good way uh, of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think voting is a huge responsibility. If it was up to me, uh, we would repeal the 17th Amendment and make it where the state legislatures pick the senators. Uh, that, that whole democratic process was bullcrap. And, uh, it's basically why we have senators now that serve for like 30 years. Um, and they're just entrenched forever. And, uh, I think, I think this, I think the last bastion of states rights, which is almost gone is yeah. the electoral college. And mm. now we want to get rid of that. And it's like, this is the death of federalism. We've already gotten rid of the states choosing their senators. 
people don't give a crap about state elections because the federal government just takes care of everything. You don't need a state government. Why do we even have state governments anymore? If you think about it, it's, I mean, the federal government, everyone expects them to do everything. So, um, so yeah, that's, I know it's super controversial. Uh, it's hard to, to talk badly about universal suffrage is definitely a, a weird take for most people, yeah. but it has nothing to do with race, religion, or, or, or gender or anything like that. I don't think a certain class of people or type of people shouldn't be able to vote. I just think the people should only be voting in certain things and that majoritarianism has its place in our Republic, but this is not a democracy. And I don't think one man, one vote for the president of the United States makes sense uh, because one man, because there are millions and millions and millions of men, you know, and women in California, you know, far more. And the fact is they are all Californians and they are all, you know, they have their own way of doing things and they have their own solutions to their own problems and their solutions aren't my solutions and I don't need their solutions. So leave me alone is mostly my, if there's an underpinning ideology, you know, for probably all libertarianism, it's leave me alone. And that's basically what I think, why the one man, one person, one vote for a presidential election doesn't make sense. We're talking about ending one of the most important checks on, on the, tyranny of the majority, hmm. uh, which is the electoral college. Wow. Well, I think that's a really good spot to wrap it up. And, uh, you know, I, I would love to have you back on. I mean, I have a bunch of more questions, you know, I guess maybe if I had you back on, the topic would be how far, how, like how we got so far from it, <laughs> you know, like, you know, what, you know, wh how did it all get just chipped away? And, you know, it's, it's so cultural, um, because it, it starts with people's own minds and, you know, there's a propaganda aspect to it, a, an educational aspect. And it's just, you know, a lot of it's just the way people think people think that the, 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 the solutions will come from on high, you know, and so people bypass in their own brains, the local communal state, although they just go straight to the national and then straight to the president, straight to the Supreme Court. And it, it's come a long way from what the founders wanted, <laughs> apparently. Yeah, we've come to think it normal for every single little issue we have to be resolved in Washington. Yeah. And that is not at all what our founders. It's rough, intended. man. Yeah. Yeah. It's a recipe for disaster, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. So, yeah, if you want to um, just tell people where they can find you and find your podcast and stuff, we're going to get out of here. All right. Well, thanks again for having me. And uh, I, I definitely want to do this again sometime. Um, we haven't really done any interviews, uh, but maybe maybe I'll invite you on for that uh, Ginger and the Beard show. That I'm Yeah, on. that'd be great. I'll uh, check that out. Uh, but, yeah, you can find uh, my podcast, Unalienable. Um that you can find it on YouTube. Uh, I think Steven's going to give a link for the YouTube one in the description, but yes. uh, I recommend YouTube because uh, for the, for the long form ones, it doesn't really matter because I don't really do a video. It's just going to have like a picture in the background, but for some of these shorter ones, like gut reaction and stuff, uh, I actually put a lot of effort into, you know, into the videos and, and actually editing all that. But uh, YouTube, uh, you know, Stitcher, iTunes, anywhere you find, anywhere you get your podcasts, I'm pretty sure I have it there. Uh, every time I hear of a new one that I've never heard of before, I go put my podcast on that platform. So uh, I think I've covered them all, like uh, all that I've heard of. So um, just search for Unalienable on any of them and you should be able to find it. Uh, on, on YouTube, it might actually be Unalienable Podcast. So type, but if you, you know, type in that Unalienable Podcast on YouTube and you'll find it. Um, I have this other 
podcast I'm doing, which you can find if you find Unalienable, but I'll tell you about it now. It's called Philosophication with Ginger in the Beard. Uh, I'm the ginger, and the other guy has a beard. His name's Jason. He's a buddy of mine from the Naval Academy, but uh, he's not in the Navy anymore. That's why he has a beard. Um, <laughs> I, would, I would totally have a beard if I could, but um, <laughs> yeah. anyway, then we have to change the name of the show, though. But uh, <laughs> anyway, and that is just a total freeform kind of uh like we find something we we found interesting over the last however long uh we 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 do that show pretty often right now we're doing something called the we're reading the great books of western civilization and talking about them so far we've done the first two the iliad and the odyssey and uh we're moving through this giant list that's literally going to take our entire lives to read but uh you know we're just taking it one by one uh but that's one thing we do you know, like the very first topic we really talked about was dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in World War II and the morality and ethical kind of dilemma there. Wow. So sometimes we just pick a random thing and talk about it. A lot of times it's current events, but it's kind of the idea is it's anything we want to talk about. And uh, so, yeah, uh, that's go check that out. Philosophication with Ginger in the Beard. Same thing. YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, all that stuff. And uh Yeah. That's all I got. Awesome, man. All right. Thank you, everyone, so much for checking us out tonight. I definitely linked all the information that Michael just referenced in the show notes. Um, thanks for coming out. This was Call Me Ignorant. You can catch my stream, The Daily Ignoramus, every weekday and on my Wednesday night concerts, uh, Wednesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern. Follow me on Twitter, Ignoramus Steve. Send me an email, stevenignoramus at gmail.com. I'm Steven Ignoramus. My guest tonight was Michael Autry. Check out Unalienable Podcast and have a nice night. Go inform yourself.